1: Season three, episode fifteen Protestants Ascendant. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Doctor Samuel Hume. Before we start, thank you to everyone who sent in congratulations since my announcement last time. I spent most of the break proudly showing off the well-wishes to whichever family member was closest, and that's including pets. That did backfire slightly when the dog thought my phone was a toy and ran off with it, but I choose to take that as a sign of approval. It's my privilege to welcome new additions to the House of Lords. Aaron, Earl of Mishla. Charles, Earl of Nottingham. Fraser, Earl of White. Maya, Viscountess Gemmel. Connor, Baron Mackay, Baron Jake, Baron William, and Baron Obanwan, And Atomic Toms has been promoted from a Viscountcy to an Earldom. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. The Earls also get access to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last time, last year, we covered one of the key elements of the Cromwellian settlement of Ireland – the resettlement of more than a thousand Catholic Irish landowning families and the confiscation of millions of acres of land. Before the 1641 Rebellion, Catholics had held nearly 60% of Irish land. After the confiscations were declared finished in 1657, Catholics owned less than 10%. It was one of the largest transfers of land ownership in history. Though some landowners were hanged for refusing to transplant, the Commonwealth was more interested in taking their land than their lives. Today's episode will cover what the government did with those millions of acres, and how Protestant political and economic power in Ireland was firmly established. The Protestant ascendancy is usually dated from the aftermath of the so-called Glorious Revolution, and many of the legal elements of the Protestant supremacy come in the 18th century. But its roots, in terms of the sheer scale of land redistribution, come now. When the Restoration comes in a few years' time, Catholic land ownership will increase slightly as old allies of the monarchy are restored to their estates, but the majority of land will remain in Protestant hands for centuries to come, even as the majority of the population remains staunchly Catholic. Land is wealth, and wealth is power, and so today let's look at where that land and power went. Once again, events in Ireland were steered by those in England and once again there was political division between Parliament in Westminster and the army, now under its commander, Oliver Cromwell. The divide was caused by many factors, but especially the fate of Irish land. Parliament wanted to give priority to the civilian adventurers, and reduce the amount of land given to the soldiers instead of pay. Unsurprisingly, the army wanted the soldiers to have the first pick of land, and to get more of it. The political crisis would end dramatically, but that is a story for another episode. What's relevant today was the establishment of the Committee for Claims for Lands in Ireland, which was headed by two adventurers. The Committee for Claims held a lottery in August 1653, where the adventurers would find out which county they would receive land in. A second lottery was held the following January in 1654, and this specified the barony which their land would be in. Before the allocation of land could go any further, the government needed to know exactly what that land was. A Surveyor General was appointed to find out. Benjamin Worsley was appointed to the position, and he wasn't a random choice. He was friendly with the adventurers he'd worked with them previously, and that would guide his surveys. The first was the Gross and Brief survey, of which only a small fragment survives, the gross survey wasn't broad enough, and so Walsley was commissioned by the civil authorities in Dublin to make a much more ambitious attempt. This civil survey drew on ownership records, rental accounts, market reports, and lists of buildings and infrastructure, as well as a pre-rebellion survey commissioned by Lord Deputy Stratford. Most of these documents dated from before the rebellion, and so it goes without saying that a lot had changed since then. It's also important to note that this survey did not measure the land or make any map, but focused almost entirely on the estimated monetary value of the land, and it made a lot of assumptions. In August 1654, Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, that's a spoiler for how the political crisis ends, appointed the Committee of Adventurers to organise the distribution of land. Miholo Shukru and David Brown note that despite earlier political divisions, The adventurers were soon largely aligned with the new government, and they did quite well out of this. Cromwell gave them serious concessions, including freedom from taxation on their new Irish land, free trade between Ireland and England, and exemption from quartering soldiers. In September 1654, the adventurers formed groups and began to pick out their land in another lottery. The army was not happy with any of this. They argued that the civil survey was going to be inaccurate and unfairly benefit the civilian adventurers, when it was the soldiers who had actually won the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and put down the Irish Rebellion. Enter stage right Dr. William Petty. Petty was a polymath, the physician-in-chief of the army and of Henry Cromwell, as well as a scientist, cartographer, natural philosopher, and statistician. In time, he will be a founding member of the Royal Society. He was a right clever clogs, and he knew it. Petty thought the civil survey was rubbish, and told everyone as much. He called Worsley a conman, and proclaimed that the only reason he'd gone to Ireland was because no one there knew him well enough to realise it. This wasn't just Petty being Petty. Worsley and the civil survey needed to be discredited in order for Petty to take his job and provide a replacement. And it worked. The authorities in Dublin appointed a committee of surveys, yes, another committee, which was dominated by supporters of the army, and they, shockingly, agreed with Petty. A new survey, which measured the counties already allocated to the army, and one that created a detailed map, was needed. Petty was, of course, chosen to do the work, and he claimed he would have it finished in a year. Worsley tried to obstruct his rival. He'd only been working on the civil survey for three months, and believed he could still prove its worth, but by the end of the year, Petty was commissioned to make his survey. Initially, the two surveys were conducted parallel to each other, but Petty was permitted to make free use of all the work that Worsley had already done. Petty's survey also clearly had stronger political backing. The civil survey was soon left in the dust, and Worsley resigned once Petty's commission was expanded to cover all confiscated lands, effectively making his civil survey obsolete. To conduct his survey at the speed he had promised, Petty used an army of agents. And I mean an army. 1,000 former soldiers were recruited to survey the land they had just conquered. Petty didn't pick former soldiers just because they needed something to do and were cheap, although they did, and they were, but also because surveying war-torn Ireland was no easy job. The surveyors suffered the weather and the plagues on the road, had to defend themselves from Tory attacks, and presumably needed to face down a lot of angry locals who had a pretty good idea why these strangers were trekking across their land and taking notes. The Down Survey, called that because it laid down chains as a method of measurement, was an exhaustive record and map of most of the island, and there's nothing like it in the early modern period. In terms of accuracy, it is only 10-12% out, which is incredible considering the rudimentary tools and methods Petty used. The down survey marked what land was productive and unproductive, what was farmland, meadow, bogs, woods, hills, mountains. It was exactly what the government needed in order to divide and distribute the landed wealth of Ireland. Of course, it had its faults many Protestant estates were not surveyed, but almost all Catholic estates were. But that makes sense, since it was the Catholic estates being targeted for resettlement. Another issue was that distinction between productive and unproductive land, which was which was decided by the surveyors and by Petty. Productive land would be taxed, and unproductive land would be bundled with nearby productive land at no additional cost. Now obviously, That's a very easy system to fiddle, and open up the possibility that vast amount of good land would be given away for free, or bad land allocated to less politically connected people. The Down Survey was an invaluable tool of imperial settlement, and Petty was richly rewarded with, what else, Irish land. Once Petty was in position, the army formed a counterpart to the Committee for Adventurers, one to represent them and their men. These trustees handled many of the soldiers' claims, taking them out of the jurisdiction of the Committee of Adventurers and Surveyor-General Worsley, while he still held the office. With the 1653 Act of Satisfaction, the confiscations and surveys fully underway, the settlement of Ireland could begin.
0: Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
1: First, the government claimed all the towns and church lands in Ireland and reserved the counties of Dublin, Kildare, Carlow and Cork. This land was awarded as the regime saw fit. A lot of land was awarded as compensation to those who successfully argued that they deserved something for services in the wars, or because they lost one form of income or another in supporting parliament. Widows and orphans petitioned the government, and particularly petty, for land, and of course there was plenty of grift. After the government reserved these territories, it was time for the adventurers to receive their long-awaited reward. The men who had put their money down in 1641 had numbered about 1,500 back then, now about a 1,000 were still alive and, politically qualified, to claim their reward in 1653, Not all the adventurers came to Ireland in person. Many would send representatives to claim their land and to administer it. More than half were Londoners, rich merchants who had most passionately supported the original Adventurers Act and had remained backers of Parliament through the years. The rest were from all across England, but with a disproportionate number coming from the West Country. The West Country, and especially the port city of Bristol, had long ties to Ireland and to plantation, especially in Munster. The other major cohort that the Commonwealth needed to pay off with Irish land were, of course, the soldiers. About 35,000 serving soldiers received their back pay in land, depending on how much they were owed. For every £600 owed, they received 1,600 statute acres. Since higher ranks received higher pay, and so were owed much more from the government, superior officers were granted much larger parcels of land outright, and, as I'll cover shortly, many expanded their new estates by buying out their subordinates. After the Irish army was paid for their service, soldiers who had fought in England before 1649 were allocated the next batch of land. After them, soldiers who were owed wages for service in Ireland before 1649 were given the rest. The land allocated to soldiers was not random, They were spread throughout Ireland, in strategic locations such as a band around the Connacht coast, with the intention of using them as a form of garrison. By settling in key territories, in theory, the soldiers could protect the adventurers, isolate dangerous Irish landowners, and ensure the stability of the new regime. Though the scale of the settlement was much larger than the Stuart and Tudor plantations, there were many similarities. One was the constant shortage of willing colonists. Just like the undertakers and servitors of the Ulster Plantation had discovered, it was all very well for the government to decree that X amount of land was to be reserved for Y number of Protestant settlers, but actually finding enough Protestants willing to move, with the skills and experience needed to survive, was borderline impossible. Because unlike the Americas which most colonists were ignorant of and could be persuaded were pure, virgin lands, free from danger and ready for settlement, everyone knew about Ireland. They knew it was dangerous and war-torn, its towns plagued with plague, its countryside preyed upon by Tories. While the great migration to New England had ended, the American and Caribbean colonies had, by 1653, been restored to London's authority. Ireland had to compete with the New World for potential colonists. As I mentioned last time, with the expulsion of Catholics from Ireland's towns and cities, their places had to be filled. It was much easier to get Protestants to come to the walled towns. Not just because it was safer inside the high walls than it would be fending off Tory raids on your farm, but also because there were valued occupations there, skilled work, as well as plenty of hard labour, there were opportunities in Irish towns that might not be available to apprentices or labourers in England, albeit made available by the expulsion of those who had previously held them. Immigration would increase once military government was wound back in 1656 and burgher rights and liberties guaranteed. It would be easier to encourage migration, but it was still not easy and it would take years for Ireland's towns to reach the height of population or productivity they had enjoyed before the rebellion. But these urban centres were, nevertheless, now strongholds of Protestant power. The colonisation of the countryside was a different matter. The process was confusing and full of delays, because even with the detail of the Down survey, conflicting claims to land were common. For the ordinary rank-and-file soldiers, it often made far more sense to just sell their land rights to others at a discount, usually their officers, but also to the adventurers. The alternative was to spend more time and money trying to claim and settle the land themselves, and for many that just didn't make sense. Hard cash or credit was much better for many than a few acres of land they'd never seen and didn't want to go to. The adventurers, especially the less well-off individuals, often did the same, selling the land they had bought and paid for a decade and a half previously at bargain bin prices. An estate valued at £10,000 was sold in 1657 for just 1500 Of course, the crashing of land values only sped up the rush to sell them on as quickly as possible, which only accelerated the crash. The exchange of land rights was messy and complicated, and nothing at all like the simple, blank paper envisioned after the conquest. In the end, the actual settling of Ireland was underwhelming, as far as the plans of the Commonwealth were concerned. Of the 35,000 serving soldiers who were given land in lieu of pay, only 12,000 actually settled in Ireland when the time came, and just a few years later, in 1660, that number had dropped to, at most, 7,500. Though about a thousand adventurers migrated to Ireland in the settlement, by 1660, only half that number remained. This means that instead of a minimum of 36,000 English colonists, less than a quarter would be in place by the Restoration. So the question is where did all the land go? Well, many officers were better placed financially to buy out their subordinates, and their higher social status and personal connections helped. Grease the wheels of the process. This meant that Cromwellian officers could put together more substantial estates that were actually worth keeping, instead of the patchwork of land that your rank-and-file soldier might have received. The greatest beneficiaries of the whole scheme were those who had one foot in each world, who strolled happily down the corridors of power in both Dublin and London. The New English, or as we'll call them now, the Old Protestants. Existing estates, like those belonging to Lord Broghill, expanded at a massive rate. They had the connections in government and on the ground across Ireland to enforce their claims to land, and they had the wealth to buy out many smaller claimants. Plus, they already had interests in Ireland, unlike many English adventurers and soldiers who just wanted their money. And again, there was plenty of outright grift. Kieran Brady and Jane Olmayer described their approach as exploiting the ambitious aspirations and practical ignorance of the Cromwellian victors to establish their dominance both as landholders and as controllers of the island's institutions. And of course, the great figures of the Commonwealth, the men who resided at the end of those corridors of power, established significant estates in Ireland. Oliver Cromwell, of course, who was both an adventurer and a soldier, and the most powerful man in the Commonwealth, had a vast Irish estate by the time of his death. His son, Henry Cromwell, an eventual Lord deputy, also built a huge estate. Highly ranked civil servants in both England and Ireland did very well out of the settlement. Treasury official Edward Roberts received 2,000 acres across four counties, and William Petty pocketed a fortune in land, officially and unofficially. The Cromwellian settlement didn't lead to mass colonisation, certainly not in the numbers the policy originally called for. The towns and cities enjoyed a steady stream of Protestant arrivals, true, but they were hardly turning people away for lack of space. But combined with the expulsion of Catholic Irish, Ireland's urban centres would be majority Protestant from here on. Out in the countryside, Protestant settlement was far more limited. The adventurers, who had waited so long for their reward, weren't keen on moving themselves and their families to war-torn Ireland. Neither, for the most part, were soldiers, whether demobilised or under arms, who were tired of fighting and didn't want to spend the rest of their lives as canaries down a coal mine, as sentries on the lookout for another Irish rebellion. Thousands sold their land rights to whoever was buying, and many others were content collecting rents while living in the towns or back in England. Instead of a widespread Protestant community, what emerged by the Restoration was a Protestant upper class, which held the majority of the land, dominated Ireland's economic and political centres, and had their power secured by their firm control over the military. It might not have been called the Protestant Ascendancy yet, but Protestants were definitely ascendant. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersage, The Marquis of Argyle, Bruce Simmons. And the Earl of Northumbria, Tim Carpenter. Go to patreon.com slash to join their ranks and listen to the podcast ad-free. For the price of a coffee a month, you can receive the bonus content as well. Remember that you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave network, such as the brilliant Art of Crime, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.